us to truly give up pursuing anything other than you that's first place in our life, and then everything else will fit in. Just thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for this time. We just give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you have already picked up this uh, Crossroads Outreach long-term thing. There's some of those at the information deal out uh, near the entrance. And pick up one because these are the people that are truly our long-term missionaries. We've got a short term that we've been sending out about every week. This is probably the youngest long-termer that we have. She is only 19 years old. Come on. And she's been a, one of our missionaries that we've supported for about a year and uh, been in various, in fact, you've been a lot of places. You've been kind of on this long-term journey around the world almost. Where have you been? Chris, this is Kristen Nelson, Kirsten, excuse me, Kirsten Nelson. Where have you been? Um, I've spent time in the Netherlands, Germany, the Czech Republic, uh, Switzerland, France, and a couple different places within the States. And you are connected with YWAM, and you are here temporarily. In fact, a week from today, you leave again. Where are you going? I'm going um, to Hawaii. I staff at the YWAM base in Kona, Hawaii. And uh, Kirsten, just tell us, what has been your heartbeat? What have you been learning? What, what's, what's, what's your plan? What's your program? Um, my, I don't have a program. Oh, I, that, that was, she, you answered that right. That was perfect for this church. We don't believe in programs here. What is your agenda? I don't really have one of those either, but. All right, let's talk again. I mean, okay. You, you know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. You yeah. Put it in age 19 language then. Um, I just want to run after the heart of God, whatever that looks like. For me, um, I'm, I'm going to be on staff with YWAM for the next year or so, and then I want to end up back here long term. Now, it's just kind of interesting. You've been in all these different places around the world. You're going to go to Hawaii, and then you're going actually to, to uh, South Africa for a year, and you're going to train a team in Hawaii because that's where YWAM does it. Hardship duty there, right? Oh, yeah. Sorry. And then you go to South Africa where it truly is some hardship. And Masi is the name of the place? Yeah, we're going to be in Masi, which is really exciting because um, you guys are in Masi. You guys have a heart for Masi, and it's so great to be sent out by a church that has um, a heart for the same places and the same um, people that I do. So it's really exciting. And again, it's not, you know, here we are, we're the big, uh, rich Americans coming to help you poor people. What is, what's the attitude? What's the, what's the method of, of communication with folks? Um, and when we're in Masi, our primary goal is to do ministry that is transformational, not transactional. Um, that looks like it's like, we're not just going to go in there guns blazing, build a house and leave. Um, when you do that, people are left, they, they aren't fixed. It's brokenness. It's still a poverty mindset. Like people in the slums with a house are still people in the slums and nothing changes. We want to go in there. Hey, I want to build this house. Will you build it with me? Will you build it with me? Let's do it together. Let's, let's get to know each other. Let's talk. Let's eat together. You can start coming to our church. Oh, you've been doing this house church thing with us for a little bit. You get it. Let us help you start a house church. And so we want to like, our goal is to see hearts transformed above anything else, even if we don't build any houses. Like, it's not what we leave there other than transformed hearts. Because the houses aren't going to last forever, no. but the people are. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. But what's so interesting to me is, again, you're relatively young. You're the youngest one on this page, I believe. And yet you've got this mighty heart that says, okay, I'm learning all this. I'm going to be in Africa. I've been in all these other countries. But my real heart is to come back to Grand Rapids and see God, some, God do something incredibly huge here. Tell us about that. Um, I, I grew up in the Grand Rapids area, and I just, it, one day I kind of realized, like, I like this place more than most people do. Like, there's something about it that I really like. And then... I realized this is, okay, this is probably from the Lord. Like, 
this is from the Lord. And I just like, I'm, I'm going to see the, the presence of God in this city, and so are you. Like, you have an inheritance in this city because God's placed you here, and so do I. And I'm going to fight for that till the end, and I will lay down my life to see the presence of God in this city and to see, um, to see the presence of God here because he has faithful friends. And that's what I want. I want to see people, like, really, really know Jesus and know him as a friend and know him intimately. Like, that is what I'm going to run after, and that is what I'm going to see in this city. And when are we going to start doing that? I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> one step at a time. One step at a time. How many people would it take who are willing to lay down their life for our city to really see God move in our city? How many would it take, like Kirsten? That's awesome. That's great. Now, you're going out to Hawaii and then to Africa. You still need some need. You have some needs, prayer needs and some financial needs. And so you're just praying that God will put on the hearts of others. Our church is assisting you, but you have some more needs beyond that, and you'd be real happy to talk to people about that. But you're leaving in a week. So, um, so get that contact part. Start talking. In fact, her, her email thing's on the back of this card right here. You can get those in the instruments. But is it okay if we pray for you now? Would you like to have the prayer of these people? Okay, go in the prayer pit. You know the, the drill. Those of you here for the first time, just stand up. This is family. This is not church. Lay hand on our dear sister Kirsten, and a number of you just loud and proud. Just pray for her. The needs will be met for Kirsten. She'll be protected, and that she will, in fact, join us as we see God move in our, in our city as well. Lord, it's just such a privilege for us to surround Kirsten. Just she has, she's young in, in age, Lord, but she's mighty in spirit, Lord, and she has cur- courage that won't quit. And she has an excitement, Lord, in you. She's seen you at work, Lord, and she just loves to be used by you. There's nothing greater in life than to, to see God work through us sinful people for your glory, Lord. That's just awesome. What a partnership it is. So we do pray for her. We, we surround her, Lord, with our love, our prayers. Do meet every need she has, we pray in Jesus' name. And, uh, Lord, just go with her every step. And, and that vision that she has for this area, let it not die. We just pray that we would keep fueling it even while she's gone. And she'd come back and maybe there would be very little work to be done because we have laid it all on the line for you, God. And we've, we've been meeting at our street corner and talking to our friends and those around us about you. And, and the mighty outpouring of your spirit, not just here, but across the globe, Jesus, because you deserve it. You're the great hero of the ages, and we love you. And now, Lord, I just pray for my brother Rod as he comes and uh, presents the gospel to us. We want to see Jesus, Lord, and I just pray that you'd speak powerfully through him. Just give him liberality. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm reminded of the power of a life so well lived for Christ. Uh, Kirsten, thank you so much. And Bruce, your prayer reminded me (laughs) of Joel too. And I know that's what was on your mind as you prayed it. Um, (laughs) That's what we're experiencing today. I really believe that. This isn't just some hype. But Joel too says in the last days... Young men, young women, old men will dream dreams, have visions of the kingdom of heaven, and they're going to go for it. 
and we're watching it. And I want, I want what Kirsten just laid out before you to mess with you this morning because it messes with me in a good way. Um, all right, we're going to just dive right into Philippians, which is the book we've been in all summer long. And we've, uh, of course, made it to chapter 3. Thank you, Matt Westerholm, last week for just opening God's Word and get, get, getting a great start into chapter 3. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 831. I'm going to start with uh, the text that Matt preached last week for context, and then verses... Really, four through six are going to be the main verses we're going to look at, but then seven through nine, we're going to also bring that to play. And if you feel like, wow, I just didn't hit that well enough, verses seven through nine this week, well, don't worry because we're going to hit it harder next week. Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. For instance, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh or in himself, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel... Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to Torah, the law, a Pharisee, and as for zeal, it's the same word which we have zealot, (laughs) persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, blameless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from Torah, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This is God's word. You can be seated. Before we uh, look at the particulars, I want to look at the big picture of Philippians. Paul is writing this letter to a little house church. Maybe it's a big house church in Philippi. And there's there's one purpose as to why he's writing this letter. Anybody remember why, why, why is Paul writing this thing? Can you even point to a verse? It's really verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, whatever happens, in Greek that word is monos. This one thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul is going for. That's what he wants from this church. And that's why then he's going to lay out in chapter 2 what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. He starts with Jesus. 
gives us the ultimate example. Christ giving it all up, going down, all the way down to death. Then Paul highlights just two ordinary people, people that they knew. He says, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus. Here are two other people who who go all the way down, who humble themselves even to the point of death. Now Paul is going to get personal. And basically, this is what he's going to say. You want an example of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel? Watch me. I know what some of you are thinking right now. How dare you, Paul, to say that? That is arrogant. He says it. I mean, this this chapter 3 is going to culminate into verse 17 where he's going to say, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to this pattern that we gave to you. He's saying, watch me. Walk the way that I walk. And what I hope in the next couple of weeks is that you will come to see this is not an arrogant statement. But it's, it, it's the kind of thing that all of us who belong to Christ should be saying. But I'll tell you right now, I want a church. I want a community of people who, like Paul, have the guts and the chutzpah to say, watch me. Because we are living in a time when our world is saying this, that there is no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And I want us to move into that world and say, oh, watch me. See how I'm different. See how we're different in the way that we treat people, in the way we conduct our lives, in in the things that we value. And I want it to be done in such a way that it just exalts Christ. So that gives you a little bit of the big picture. Now Paul begins chapter 3, and we saw this last week, with a pretty loud warning. And it's watch out. It's beware. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there are some huge threats that lurk that keep us from living a life worthy of the gospel. We're going to see one of these things at the end of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and I'll just sum those verses up. It's, it's the whole threat of worldliness, of, of, of getting entrenched so much in this world that is a major threat to us living lives worthy of the gospel. The other threat that Paul starts out chapter 3 with, with is this, religion. I think it's the biggest enemy of the gospel, religion. That's why in verse 2, it doesn't show up in, in your uh, NIV, but in the Greek, it's beware, beware, beware. Three times he says it, and I'll tell you why he says it, because I think We can see worldliness a thousand miles away. I can see it in you. I can see it in me. But religion is a far more dangerous thing because we can't see it because it looks so good. That's why Paul says, beware, beware, beware. And maybe it might be a good time for me to explain what I mean by religion because we talk so much about religion uh, lately. This is what religion is. 
Religion is when I put my confidence in what I do for God, in how I perform for God. It's this, this righteousness or this righteous resume that I give to God with the understanding that, okay, God, now you have to like me. Now you have to accept me. Now you need to bless me. And see, Christianity and the gospel have nothing to do with that. It's, it has nothing to do with this righteousness that I produce and give to God, but everything to do with the righteousness that God produces and then gives to me. And see, somehow religious people miss this. And here's the deal with religion. It's so subtle. It's so tempting because it still makes it all about me. That's why at the end of the day, I don't think it's that much different than worldliness. Because it gives me this, this false notion that I'm still in control of me and my life. If I do this, 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 and this, then God needs to do this, this, and this. And then I ask, who's God in that scenario? And this is why religious people also like to say or believe that it's Jesus plus something else. And that something else is, it, 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 it's my spiritual resume. It, it, it's me being a big part of this equation. And see, that's what's going on in Philippi. There's this group of people called Judaizers. The Judaizers were this. They were this group of Jewish Christians who were adding to the gospel by requiring that the basics of Torah or the Old Testament laws be followed. Things like circumcision, keeping a kosher diet, celebrating the Sabbath and the feasts. Basically what they were doing is they were telling Gentile Christians, you need to live like Jews if you're going to be acceptable to God. Now the interesting thing about these Judaizers that I came to find out this week is that they were most likely not even Jewish. But their Gentiles who converted to Judaism then came to believe that Jesus is Messiah and now they're telling Gentile Christians what they must do to become like Jews. I don't know if you followed all that. But this is where it gets good. Because Paul steps into this thing. He decides to play their game on their turf because this is a game that Paul has played his whole life. So he plays it. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, If you have confidence in your, in your flesh, in yourself, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul just laid out six things. Here's my spiritual resume. This is my personal glory. This is my significance. This is my personal righteousness. You guys want to talk circumcision? I'm an eighth there. That sounds just like me growing up. I'm not a oncer, I'm a twicer. Anybody hear that language before? Yeah, <laughs> some of you guys are getting twitchy right now. Um, you, you, you want to talk race? Unlike you proselytites, I'm purebred. I'm a purebred Israelite. I can even trace my blood back to a specific tribe. Remember Benjamin? 
Benjamin was the favored son of Jacob. His mom wanted to name him son of my morning. Jacob steps in that thing. No, he is son of my right hand. Then that, that, that Benjamin grew, grew into a tribe. That tribe, when it entered the promised land, was placed between his two big brothers, Judah and, and Joseph or Ephraim. This is the only tribe besides Judah that stays loyal to the house of David. This is the tribe that boasted Israel's most important city, which is what? Jerusalem. It's also the tribe that gave Israel its first king, who was who? Saul. What was Paul's name before this? Saul. Then he goes on and says this, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning this. I'm not only of pure stock, but I come from a family that lives Hebrew, breathes Hebrew, speaks Hebrew. And of course, Paul grew up in Tarsus, which was a Greek pagan city. And what he's basically saying is this. We didn't dabble even this much in that Greek stuff. My family remained Hebrew. And when it comes to Torah... And observing it, I'll tell you what we were. We're Pharisees. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound impressive. Well, that's because you only have a small view of what a Pharisee is. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were birthed out of a massive culture war about 200 years before Jesus. See, that part of the world completely changed when Alexander the Great and the Greeks and then later the Romans came to conquer. Because remember, Alexander the Great, he didn't just conquer the world, he Hellenized the world. He was the world's greatest missionary prior to the apostle Paul. And what he was propagating, what his gospel was, was all things Greek. Greek language, Greek worldview, Greek way of life, Greek gods, Greek entertainment. And see, before this, any invaders that, that, that came into Israel, Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Assyrians, they were people much like the biblical people. It'd be like Canada and, and, and United States battling it out, or Indiana and Michigan. But when the Greeks and the Romans come... They've never seen a people like this before. It's the West invading the East. It was like these Martians showed up. People with a whole different worldview, a whole different way of life. They brought their theaters, their gymnasiums, their, their arenas. They were sex-saturated, sports-saturated, body-worshipping people. And I'll tell you something, it's not that much different today. In fact, I couldn't believe just being in Israel for four months how it hardly has changed at all. The East is very different from the West. I could give you a hundred examples, but I don't have time for that. But I'll give you one. We happened to get down to a beach. On this side of the beach, it was down in the Red Sea, was Jordan, the East. On this side of the beach was Egypt. But that's where all the Europeans and the Russians came down to vacation. So let me just show you someone on, on the east and, and, and what the beach would look like. I don't know if you got that downloaded. It's not that, that's how their women show up on the beach. That's how they go into the water. 
Okay, let me show you. Just, I, I, I was careful to take pictures. Here's a family. There's a dad, his daughters, his wife, his son right there. You go on the other side of the beach. You could literally almost pick a stone up and throw it and hit the beach. There are the Westerners. Literally. I don't have pictures of that. Can't show it. It's rated X. I'm like this with my kids. Can't look. Can't look. We can't go there. We can't go there. Topless. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but can you feel the difference? And I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what the East still thinks of the West. I can sum it up in three words. When they think of America, they think Hollywood. They think sport. And they think sex. That's what they think we are. And I'll add one more. Materialism. Okay, and, 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 and this is what is is. is Coming into that part of the world, starting with Alexander the Great. And this is what a group of people called Pharisees were responding to. Because basically what they said was this. We're not going to accommodate. We're not going to assimilate. We're going to remain faithful to God and faithful to his Torah. Well, then you get this one ruler, Antichus Epiphanes, okay? He's a Jewish ruler, but you can tell he's got a Greek name. Literally means God manifest. In his attempt to make that part of the world Greek and Western, he placed a statue of, of Zeus in the temple, sacrificed pigs there, and then gave a death sentence to anyone who practiced circumcision, practiced the feast and the Sabbath, or read Torah. And I'm telling you, people were dragged through the streets, they were flayed, they were impaled. And I'm telling you, under this, the Pharisees not only emerged, but they emerged as a force. And as this culture war raged, the Pharisees made this total life commitment to God that was centered upon, we're going to be obedient to him. And they had this passionate commitment to be holy as God is holy. And they understood that holiness must begin with Torah. So they passionately devoted themselves to the text of scripture. They were consumed with it. They studied it. They oftentimes memorized the whole thing. Why? We're going to be wholehearted to God. So they learned it, they loved it, they memorized it, they prayed it, they taught it. And if they had to, they died it. A later Jewish ruler in a century leading up to Jesus, who was so tired of these Pharisees and their devotion to God, because a city on a hill was blocking his agenda to make that part of the world Western and Greek, throws a banquet, invites 800 Pharisees with their families. Halfway through the banquet, he brings in his soldiers. One by one, he hangs those men on crosses. 800 men lining the streets, crosses. As those guys are hanging there, you know what he does? He takes out their wife and children. And as they're dying on those crosses, he slits their throats. And see, we think we have culture wars. And this is why by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were easily the most influential, respected group among the Jews. Why? Because of their total commitment to God and to his word to be holy as God is holy. So I show up to one of my first classes 
one of my professors was a Jewish rabbi. And here he is, introducing himself. He's actually from the state of Michigan, grew up here. Uh, I mean, he's like us, okay? Um, so I don't want you to think of just, anyway, but all of a sudden he says this, and I'm what you guys would call Pharisee. And I'm like, you kidding me? There's still Pharisees today, huh? You better believe there's still Pharisees today. I come to find that this guy, every single Friday, our class was from 2 o'clock until 5 o'clock, he came in giddy. And at first I couldn't figure it out, but I finally connected the dots. I mean, it was like Christmas to this guy. I'm like, this guy, every day is Christmas. No, it was Christmas to him because Shabbat started in a few hours and he couldn't wait. Oh, did he have a love for God's word. And no Christ. I pray for that guy. But I thank God for that guy because I can understand now, a better understanding of probably who Paul was before he met Christ. Three times Paul says in the New Testament, I am a Pharisee. In fact, in uh, Acts 22, verse 3, he says, I trained under Gamaliel, meaning Paul studied at Harvard, the Harvard of his day under the leading Pharisee. Galatians 1, verse 14, he says, I was so advanced, I was tops in my class. And Paul says, as for zeal, again, it's this passionate total life commitment. Paul says, let me tell you how zealous I was. I persecuted the church. You're saying, what does that have to do with righteousness? In Paul's mind, that had everything to do with righteousness. Biblical basis for righteousness. Psalm 106, verse 30. Forgot to mark it. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Here's Paul's biblical basis for killing Christians. In fact, uh, in Galatians 1, verse 14, he basically says, I tried to obliterate the whole church. (laughs) Think about this guy. How passionate he was. I tried to wipe the whole thing out. But he says, uh, he says, Okay, but Psalm 106, verse 30 says, but, but, but Phinehas stood up, intervened, and the plague was checked. What's that a verse about? Well, you go back to Numbers, and what was happening was the people of Israel were having sexual relations with the people from Moab. In fact, it was just right out in the open. And so finally, Phinehas, um, one of the priests says, enough is enough. He takes his spear and he throws it through both of them while they're right there in the act. And so Psalm 106.30 describes that. But you see what the next verse says? This was credit to Phinehas as righteousness for endless generations to come. So not only do we have to have faith like Abraham, and that's credit to us as righteousness, but we need to be like Phineas. We didn't put up with any evil. And then Paul says his six qualifications. As for legalistic righteousness, you almost have to be shocked at what Paul says. He says, faultless, blameless. Now listen, Paul isn't saying that he never sinned. In fact, later Paul's going to say, look, I'm the chief of sinners. That's because he comes to know Christ. But even here, this is more or less what I hear Paul saying. Not that I've never sinned, 
But I think he's saying, I can't remember not keeping a Shabbat, not celebrating a Passover, not keeping kosher. I kept it all. In fact, you know what I find very interesting in this text? If you have an NIV Bible, we've translated the word nomos, which simply means law, which is what a a, a Jew would use. It was the Greek word he would use in talking about the Torah, the Old Testament. We've translated that as legalistic righteousness. Legalism. And I wonder if that's the word God would use to describe the first half of the Bible as legalism. Now, Paul just made some amazing boasts. And we've got to ask ourselves, why is this guy talking this way? Well, what's the question at hand? Here's the question. What are you going to put your confidence in when it comes to God? What is it that gets you in? And see, we've been taught our whole lives that, that to get in, you need a resume. You need the right kind of resume. And that's what religious people think, that if I can come up with the right uh, resume and offer that to God, I'm in. Is that how you think? I mean, what gives you confidence today that you're in, that you belong to him? Or do you have confidence? Do you have assurance? What are you placing your confidence in today? See, that's the question at hand And and Paul is saying this, if you think it's about a resume, that a person has to pony up to all these merits and and accomplishments, he's saying, you know what? I'll tell you something. I got the resume. I got a better resume than any of you guys. And see, he's playing the Judaizers game. He beats them at their game. And then he says, the whole game is worthless. Completely worthless. And here's why the game's worthless. It's not because the Torah is bad. It's not because the first half of our Bibles, hmm, God tried that, that thing didn't work, so let's just throw that thing out. No, Paul says in Romans 7 that the law, the Torah, it's good, it's holy, it's spiritual. Of course it is, it's from God. This is why Paul never stops observing the law. It's God's instruction. It teaches us about God. It spells out how holy God is. And it tells us what it means to God for us to be holy. This is why Paul continues to celebrate the feast, the Sabbath. You read Acts. He's always trying to get back for Passover. He's trying to get back for this feast. That's why he's always going to the synagogue on Shabbat. That's why Paul continues to live by the law. Write these things on your doorposts. Say them as you walk. Teach them to your children. Tie these things to your arms. Why, says God? So you can live. Jesus himself says this. I didn't come to abolish or cancel out the Torah. I came to fulfill it. I came to accomplishment, to do what you couldn't do, and to accomplish what you couldn't. Here's the deal. As good and holy and spiritual as Torah is, please hear me, it can't save. For one simple reason. 
because you and I are not good. We're not holy. We're not spiritual. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. The Bible says even our best acts of righteousness are but filthy rags to God. Can't do it. Hear me on this. We have nothing to offer God in terms of our righteousness. Do you know this? This is burning you. See, religious people don't know this. And that's why they are stuck on this treadmill. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to do more. got to be more. got to do more. got to be more. <laughs> it's just killing them. And see, this is where many of the Pharisees went wrong. And herein lies, I think, the whole danger of religion. It is this belief that in and of myself, I can do it. If I just try hard enough, I can accomplish it. That I can generate and produce this righteousness of my own, offer it to God. Now God, like me, accept me, bless me, show up and work through me. That's why I think many godly people, there are people in this room, I don't know who you are because religion is so hard to detect. So many of us go the way of religion. It's all about me. It's all about my efforts. It's all about my performance, about my righteousness, the thing that I do, the thing that I produce, give to God. The gospel of God is this, and this is what Paul came to learn. It's not about your effort. It's not about your performance. It's about his performance. It's about his record. It's about his righteousness. God says, Here's my son. Here's my gift to you. Take him. Trust me. And here's my bottom line on the whole thing. I was thinking about this this week. To the religious person, Jesus just isn't enough. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, all that he did for us, it, it, it's, it's not enough. And, and so religion then makes a mockery of everything that God has done in and through Jesus. Because, listen to me, it treats Jesus and his work like this little old lady that I need to help across the street. <laughs> Kidding! See, in Paul, before he encountered the grace of God in the face of Christ... I see this guy very much like that rich young ruler, this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus answers him, what does Torah say? And he says, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done it all. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. But because Jesus loved him, it's like, okay, now let me expose to you what you've just done. All you've done, no, you haven't. You haven't fulfilled the requirements of the law. All you've done is you've lowered them to make you think you have. And then Jesus goes to the jugular. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You know what that guy does? He didn't argue with Jesus. He just walks away sad. Because he knows in his heart he can't do it. 
And that's the reason why many of you go away sad, because you know in your religion that you can't do it. This is why you're sad. This is why you're joyless. This is why you're so critical and judgmental. It's why you constantly beat yourself up. I gotta do more. I gotta be more. You can't. Our hearts are so bent towards religion. Paul's saying, you know what? I played that game once. I got good at that game. I was probably better than anybody at that game, but then I found Christ. Or Christ found me, as he puts it. And what Paul found when when Christ found him is that this whole game, it's worthless. In fact, it's even worse than worthless. Why? Well, look at verses 7 through 9. Paul talking about his spiritual resume, but whatever I thought was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That word there is excrement. It's all crap. In Byron Center, I'd be more comfortable saying another word, but not all you guys are from Byron Center, okay? So my wife shut me up on that, thank goodness. But that's what it is to Paul. And see, he's putting this in banker's terms because Paul's whole life, he, he, he's been most confident, confident in himself, in his stellar resume that he has to offer to God. And he thinks that all these things are deposits that are accruing some interest with God. And so he confidently approaches God like he's this spiritual billionaire. I'm this, I'm that, I've done this. But what he actually finds out when he meets Christ, not only is there nothing there in his bank account, but what he thought were gains are actually losses. His, his deposits were actually withdraw, draw, withdrawals. He isn't a spiritual billionaire. He's spiritually bankrupt. He's a beggar. I want you to know today, there are two ways to be lost. Not just two ways to be mistaken. I'm talking two ways to be lost. And see, that's what Jesus is is warning us of in the parable of the prodigal. Two sons, both are lost. One is lost in his badness or his worldliness. The other is lost in his goodness or his religion. They are both lost. And in the end, only one is found. It's not the good one. It's the bad one. In fact, listen to this good son in the parable. Father, all these years I've slaved away for you, and I've I've kept all your rules but he's still alienated from the father. All he knows is obedience to rules. He doesn't know the kiss and the embrace of the father. See, and Jesus in this parable actually teaches us what it means to be found. That's what the whole chapter is about, about about God finding, bringing back to himself. And see, being found has very little to do with keeping the rules and being religious. Being found is to experience the real embrace and the real kiss of a real father. It's coming home. 
to our heart's true home, which is experiencing the love and the grace of the Father. And that's why Paul puts it, I've been found. I'm, I, I've, been, I've been found in him. I no longer have a, a righteousness of my own. He found me. He embraced me. He cleansed me. He kissed me. Are you found? Have you really come home? Where's your confidence? See, John Gerstner once said that what separates most people from Jesus, it's not their sins. It's their damnable good works. See, and coming home means we not only repent of our badness and our sins, it means we must also repent of our righteousness, our self-righteousness, and all this good stuff we think we're doing for God. I believe Gerstner is, is right that sin is not the main thing that keeps us from God. It, it's not the thing that most blinds us and screws us up. It's our righteousness. This whole thing is not about trying to give God the perfect resume. It's God giving to us the perfect resume in Jesus. So what's your righteousness? See, what Paul is saying, I've come to this place, I no longer have confidence in me, in my spiritual resume. All these things were once my significance, my glory, my standing, my merit, my boast. Now it's just done. It's crap. His confidence is in one place. Him. He. He. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 14, he says, may I never boast. If I'm going to boast in one thing, it will be this, the cross. I'll boast in the cross. And see what the cross is, and I don't think we see this because we just think, oh, nice God, nice cross, nice God on that nice cross, and isn't it all nice? The cross isn't nice, it's offensive. It's the world's greatest monument to human helplessness and wickedness because what the cross screams at us is this, I hope we can hear it, that we are all hopelessly lost, we are that wicked that the God of the universe would actually have to do that to rescue us. And see, in Romans 3, verse 22, it says the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then it says this, these words, there is no difference. Feel the offense of this. The cross means there's no difference between the husband who's faithful to his wife and the husband who regularly cheats on his wife. The cross means there's no difference between the student who with integrity works hard to get good grades and, and the student who cheats his way through college. The cross says there's no difference between the pimp and the pastor. We're all the same. Hopelessly lost, desperately wicked. The cross also sums up the righteousness that's been offered to us in Christ. And I think it's best summed up in those Last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. I did it. I did what you could do. 
I accomplished what you couldn't accomplish. In fact, those words in the Greek are tetelestai. Oh, do you realize that though that word, it's one word, we, we translate it, it is finished, but tetelestai was written on every business document and receipt in the New Testament times to show that that thing was paid in full. Paid in full. I did it. There's our comment. He paid the debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I'll sing a brand new song. Amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt I could never pay. Therefore, I'm left with just one response. There's one thing I can give. Need and trust. All you need is need. All you need to do is trust. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Trust him. Need him. Let's pray. God, we live in West Michigan. We live in one of the most religious corners in the world. And God, religion strikes my heart every day. Every day, I need to preach gospel to my heart. Because every day, I'm so bent to me. God, this morning, I pray your gospel would set us free. Open the eyes of our heart. Let us see who we are in light of the cross. I pray for desperation and need and real trust in Jesus' name.